0: Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Ian Haynes, Professor of Roman Archaeology at the University of Newcastle. Now to say Ian is a busy man would be an understatement. In this show we talk about his ongoing work at the Lateran in Rome, you know, the official church of the Pope, so no big deal there. Pompeii and Herculaneum, those little sites in Italy that nobody's ever heard of. And we don't really actually get on to talk that much about the various projects he's been involved in along Hadrian's Wall, such as Maryport and Belt Oswald. And we only really scratch the surface would just about scratch the surface in regards to his ongoing project in Romania, Apulum, looking at the large sanctuary site there. What we do talk about, however, is the time he spent travelling in Amazonia and on the Silk Road, how archaeology is not about individuals but teamwork, I mean there is literally no eye in archaeology now I think about it, keeping up with new technology being introduced into archaeology, and how a rainy break time at school at the age of 10 was the moment that set Ian on the path to Roman archaeology. Just to note, the programme of abstracts for Track 2019 is now up at the Track website, so chuck that in your Google machine, go find it, and you can see what we've got on offer for you from the 12th to the 15th of April, should you decide to join us down here in wonderful Canterbury. So, as always, thanks for joining me, and on to the show. <music> Where, where actually are you at the moment? Because every time I speak to you, you always seem to be in a slightly different place.
1: <laughs> well, I do move I do move around.
0: Um,
1: I do move around. So if you've been speaking to me a couple of days ago, um, we would have been in my, my office in my apartment in Newcastle. But uh, today I'm in northern France. Uh, I think the week before you probably would have caught me in uh, the week before that, you would have caught me in, in Rome where I was working on the, uh, the Lateran project.
0: Yeah, because I was, uh, that was the other thing. I mean, ahead of this, I was looking through your, your, the profile on the Newcastle website. And particularly when I was looking at the ongoing research that you've got, particularly in regards to fieldwork, I was just like, how? How do you, because at the moment you're working, as you say, in the Lateran in Rome, is the, the the scanning and imaging project with Pompeii and Herculaneum still going on, as well as the Apulum project all at the same time? Or are you juggling all those things simultaneously?
1: Well, so um, the, the way it works is, is, as you know, David, is that you you can obviously have quite a, for, for every bit of intense field work that you're doing there's quite a lot of, of writing up yeah. uh, that needs to follow to, to take those three projects as an example uh, as examples the, the latter one we sort of launched formally in 2012, and that uh, is one where we go out for periods of, of say a fortnight at a time, a couple of times in the year, and that's very intense stuff. The analysis, of course, must take place on site, but there's also a lot of analysis, particularly of the laser scanning data, that has to take place afterwards, and we need to have a sort of ongoing, if you like, dialogue between both site time and data time, and to make sure that we're continuously uh, looking at both. The uh, work on the Pompeii and Herculaneum project uh, is one where we did the the site uh, recording work. Uh, for Expanded Interiors a while back now. But the project, uh, which is about a dialogue, really, between fine art and archaeology as well, and I think actually primarily uh, to focus on on the quite magnificent work of of Catherine Huber and the way that she draws inspiration from from archaeology. And therefore, uh, our work on that project uh, continues. The project is still live. And we're working towards some some workshops where we'll bring the the directors of both Pompeii and Herculaneum to to Newcastle. We'll have some workshops and discussions and just continue that intellectual exchange about how fine art and archeology span can talk to one another in different ways and and present themselves in different ways to the public. Um, So that, uh, although I've been doing work on that this morning, for example, that isn't quite as consuming on a day-to-day basis uh, as it was, uh, say, a year or so ago. Uh, the Appleham project is is a long-term love of mine. That is the case where, as with uh, Merriport, uh, an, another extensive field project I was privileged to work on, we're, we're moving towards publication. So there's a, we're, we're in what we, we would call the analysis uh, stage. And so quite a lot of my work at this time, as opposed to, say, a couple of years ago, is... Pretty high-level technical interventions on a site, either in the form of laser scanning and various forms of structural analysis or uh, geophysical survey, and then a, a lot more, if you like, library archive writing time. And that's distinct from those periods in the past where I had uh, very extended periods of, of, of excavation, which obviously follows a, will often follow a very different rhythm and very different set of demands.
0: Yeah, I I could just imagine though the 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 idea of working something on, on something in regards to the Lateran, Pompeii and Herculaneum and Apulum all at the same time. I mean, there must be moments where you sit there and just go, "Wow!" Just just wow. I mean, those are those are some sites that are just. I mean, they're almost incomparable in some regards. I would have thought.
1: Well, you're very kind. I would say "Wow" is the right word, and I would say that we should feel free. You know, we should we should be open to to saying "Wow" and acknowledging that these places you know where we where we work the fact that we have this privileged insight into amazing places yes wow is right let's let's be quite open about the fact that we can enjoy the fact that some of this is just epic and yes uh, those i should actually pause for a moment myself before i get back to the nitty-gritty of, of you know project management and making sure that i've got all my my metadata and kept nice and clean and orderly you know it's wow is right i definitely have lots of wow moments and i i, I just can myself very, very fortunate to have those moments. Uh, I think the wow moment is something we've got to savour, but I think the wow moment pretty pretty quickly also is one of the moments that reminds us the responsibilities that we should be held to. I think, I think we're all very conscious uh, that when, particularly when it involves destructive work, there is a very powerful responsibility. The, the sheer number of individuals who, in all sorts of different ways, generously give us access to these sides uh, and whose painstaking day-to-day work is often to make sure that uh, say someone like the, the Lateran that they are they are maintained safe and accessible these these are these are things where um, you know we have a responsibility to them to the site and to the public so so there is that that space for that private yes i'm having this absolutely amazing time i am so fortunate but it quite quickly is followed up with okay well game on let's make sure we are doing the right thing body here
0: yeah, absolutely. The the Lateran project as well, am I right? That, that's near to the, the point now of publication?
1: Yeah, so the Lateran project um, is, is being published in various forms. Uh, so the um, for much of the that have been working on the Lateran project, our work has been underneath uh, the Basilica or the Archbasilica, San Giovanni and Laterano, St. John Lateran, the Pope's, the Pope's Cathedral. And a lot of our work has been under there. And some of those elements that are underneath the cathedral offer what we could argue is a discrete story. Now, we have a volume of my excellent colleagues, Paolo Liverani and Osman, uh, coming out, which is on the story, really, of St. John Lateran, And that means the story of the site, so the series of developments that took place before the construction of the cathedral because they are also relevant to the cathedral in many ways, relevant to a bigger history of Rome. Um, but the lateral project actually uh, has uh, expanded as our understanding of Rome has expanded with it. So, One of the things really that you can say of that location is it holds the key to a different kind of understanding of Rome and the transformation of Rome and the pursuit of a better understanding of this this larger picture and of the way in which Rome changes uh, has taken us further afield so as a result of the generous support of the British school at Rome and in in this case one of one of their major supporters we've been able to extend our work uh, to address very similar research questions so as, as a result of um, so the, the one of the points that's been very important for us is we've been able to to extend our area of operation to the latter and quarter. And uh, so while work on the publication of the uh, cathedral and its predecessor structures, archaeology, is uh, quite an advantage, we are able to extend our area of operation um, into the area underneath the uh, medieval Hospital of San Giovanni in Laterano, or San, uh, San Giovanni Adolorante, and that complements the story that we're getting. And that work has been going now for about eighteen months, and we'll have publications from that coming out very soon as well. So, um, first of all, in uh, in I- Italian as part of a uh, collaborative project that we've been working on with the hospital authorities, but then. In a, in a larger technical volume, which I hope will be bilingual. So the publication is going on as different sections of the project uh, emerge. Obviously we need to keep on top of the interim reports, um, but there is also a, a, an attempt here to reach towards a, a, a bigger vision, a vision that, uh, that illuminates really how Rome is changing through looking at what we feel is the underappreciated southeast quarter of the city
0: fantastic is it true that it says on the website or on your research profile that one of the buildings there might be the childhood home of Marcus Aurelius is that yeah yeah, yeah. quite possible? Uh, yeah yeah we
1: are all pretty convinced uh, that we're looking at uh, the house of Domitio Lucilla the mother of Marcus Aurelius and of course Marcus Aurelius actually grew up and um and lived in that home and took the purple so yes I would say that's one of the things where there's a fair degree of a- consensus i mean that part of much of that site was it was exposed in part in the 70s but there is still a lot that we don't understand and much of that which was exposed is from the, uh, from, from a significantly later period than marcus Orievitz's own lifetime
0: well one of the things you uh, we were talking about actually a minute ago um, just going circling back around actually as well to the 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 scanning i was just quite interested in that actually because we had a professor that came here a few years ago, uh, Yoshiki Hori, who's a, a professor from Japan who specialises in laser scanning, and had, had done a bit of laser scanning at Pompeii and Ostia as well. This this kind of utilisation of laser scanning, because I guess that's what you're using at Pompeii and Herculaneum, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do yeah. you? I mean, like, I was just wondering, like, what are your thoughts on like how that's kind of like transformed the way in which we record? and the way in which we're able to accumulate data. Because, I mean, when Yushiki was here, I mean, it was quite stunning, like the stuff that you could actually see. And obviously this, yep. you know, this wasn't available at all, really, like even, I don't know, like 10, 15 years ago. And even, I mean, I suppose now, I mean, even, well, I don't know how, how far advanced it's got. I mean, when he was here, he needed quite a powerful computer to run it. But do you feel like that being quite a big transformation in the way that we approach the the archaeological yeah. uh, data? <laughs>
1: I do. I mean, I go so far as to say that when we conceived the the original uh, Lateran project in its earliest form, the hardware and software hadn't quite got to the stage where we could deliver on the scale of high resolution survey that we wanted to achieve. Um, it then became both more affordable and also uh, more portable. I mean, our early attempts with some of the scanners were, were fine in large open areas, but it wasn't until we were able to access first the, the faro focus that we were able to work in some really often very discreet hard to access spaces i think there are a couple of things that i would say about it. uh one is that it, it can of course yield spectacular results it can uh crucially facilitate this essential dialogue between site and documentation that has to be a constant what one must never do is make the Mistake. And I often you know, draw a parallel with my, myself as a student when I would sometimes get this feeling of elation, having photocopied some hard-to-reach article, to, to imagine that that meant that I had therefore somehow absorbed the knowledge that that article contained. And so it is with scanning. Uh, you know, the Mark One eyeball is still important. You still have to study the site. You have to cite intimately. You can't just absorb yourself wholly uh, within uh, some cloud of data. But... You will need to, to ask questions from different angles, from different approaches, look at different relationships. And having that in digital form is, is incredibly important. I think the other thing that I would say that I've learned, and this is another area of revolution, sometimes relatively quiet revolutions, actually, is that um, scans can produce, of course, submillimeter accurate data. The uh, sheer number uh, of points that are being scanned is is, is mind-boggling. This Size of the data is extraordinary. One thing is the issue of processing that much data, and that's something you've alluded to. The other thing is one might therefore assume that certain kinds of information that are important to the archaeologist will be readily extractable from all scanned data. And in fact, one of the things that we've definitely found is alongside having good structural scanners, Uh, We are using a lot of white light scanners as well for certain types of surface, and we back those up with structure-from-motion imaging and modelling in order to deal with things like, say, inscriptions of some sort that might be on the text or bits of decorative detail. Uh, So it is quite important to have a range of scans, uh, scanners available to you if you want to really capture the full range of information that a single archaeological site can give you. And that um, is, is something that's possibly not immediately obvious to people. But when you are wanting to integrate data that is coming from ar- architectural elements, uh, from uh, sometimes some quite bland uh, surfaces, uh, but also uh, a site that might yield highly intricate artwork and graffiti then you need to have your wits about you in terms of how you may move from one form of imaging to
0: another yeah no yeah, just it, those those sort of transformations just fascinate me in some respects i mean even now i mean it's not quite the same thing but when i'm teaching particularly i do one of the modules on roman art and architecture and i try to incorporate things like 3d models in my slides and you know the kind of interactive ones where you can zoom in and spin it around and just it just gives it a completely different feel to to people when you're trying to teach them as well being able to present those things in 3D and present them in a way that yeah a, a 2D slide can't can't quite do it's just i don't know it just it's really fascinating i mean i've been talking to people before actually i was talking to last week uh, adam parker when he was talking about working for yorkshire museums and saying uh, they've got like a VR headset there, where you go into the museum and put it on, and you can feed a dinosaur. Um, but it's yeah. it's just fascinating how yeah, the, the yeah. technology is just completely transforming the way in which we approach the archaeology and approach heritage.
1: I think that's I think that's right. I mean, it, it was one of the things that inspired us to to launch a new digital heritage, and so we've got a lot of uh, scanned images from the Great North Museum, which allow people to to do the things that you're you're talking about. I think one of the other challenges that you touch on, you referred to the the headset, is the you know the different ways of seeing this data and accessing this data, and this is where we also need to be constantly mindful not only of our current audiences but our audiences of the future, Uh, both in terms of the cultural shifts, in terms of how people are comfortable with accessing this data, but also uh, the fact that more and more people have more and more compute power at their disposal, which on the one hand makes a lot more possible, Uh, but some of the devices. Is, uh, that were much touted as ways of experiencing digital data are, are now already, after two to three years, starting to look perhaps just a little bit dated or are are, are less readily accessible. And so it's actually staying, on the one hand, I think staying up to date with what's going on, but looking always at the sustainability of the data and the way of experiencing the data and not being too... Quickly crushed under the whole raft of exciting bandwagons that are inevitably coming out of these successive revolutions.
0: Yeah, that's just the uh, broader issue of technology, isn't it? Really, it moves so fast now that sometimes it's it's difficult to to keep on top of what works and what doesn't work and what's effective and what's not, and it's so rapidly changing.
1: Absolutely. Of course, archaeologists are often. I mean, we often we often joke about the fact that some of our theoretical models end up end up coming down to us a little bit late from other fields but in, in a number of areas we are classic early adopters so we're we're we, we are often looking at these new technologies and saying well how can that work for us um, and that's exciting and that drives a lot of really really good stuff but if you're looking at the long-term life of a research project you've got to try and balance all these things how do I exploit the best that there is available how do I ensure um, that uh, it's done in a way that will allow uh, an interdisciplinary team, uh, some of which may be much more uh, computer literate than, than other elements. And how do how I make sure that that data is accessible to them all in the same meaningful and useful way uh, that takes us all forward together? So there it's, are it's quite, it, they're, they're quite interesting, uh, challenges over, over the long term life of the project, which is determinedly high tech.
0: I know. I know this is going to be a very difficult question to answer. What I, I was just wondering, if you had to choose, you've been involved in a lot of fieldwork projects over the years. Do you have a particular favourite at all?
1: Uh, I think you can genuinely be absolutely in love with multiple projects, and I would say I have been. Uh, I think the projects I've been privileged to be involved in are often very, very different in form. You know, the, the excitement of encountering afresh the house of the cryptoporticus in pompeii is a very different experience from the e- excitement of descending underneath the the floor of uh, the lateran cathedral uh and basically uh illuminating with your head torch various bits of structural detail that, that speak to a process 2000 years ago and that's different again from the sheer joy of being part of a large field team Undertaking, if you like, a, a classic excavation project where there are different rhythms and different kinds of forms of excitement. And as you know, you know, the discovery of the battered remnant of a wall foundation on one site can bring its own kind of excitement and sense of achievement, which can be every bit as real. As then encountering somewhere else in the roman empire a wall that towers above you and is complete in all its different elements they the 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 way in which we fall in love with these things is often based on the different things that they tell us but it's also about the magnificent teams magnificent people that you get to work with and you were saying earlier on you know there are so many fascinating people in our field and and i've been you know really really fortunate with that so i think projects i think of what we learn from them and i get excited about that i think about the rhythm of working on them i think about the beautiful places one sees but i also just think about some of the truly remarkable people that it's been my privilege to spend time with all of those things mean that it's very difficult to sort of say that one necessarily one single standout project but i think the longest I've been involved in are pro- probably the ones i'm passionate about that's probably the easiest way
0: yeah archaeology i suppose it is one of those things where it almost is Experience-wise, the sum of its parts. Really, I don't suppose. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Actually, yeah, I suppose when I think about it, it's very difficult to say what my favourite excavation has been because they all do have their own character to them. As you say, digging at Silchester is not the same as digging in Cyprus. Both have their own particular memories attached to them, which are very important to me in different ways. No, no, it's, yeah, no, it's very interesting. Yeah, no, it's just it's one of those things where you, it's very easy to ask actually what your favourite excavation is, your favourite finders, but as you say, it's. It's one of those things where actually everything has its has its own kind of meaning to it, and it is quite difficult actually to yeah. to separate them out and say well this was better than that because everything is good for its own reason. Absolutely. I can definitely I can definitely well I won't mention I can definitely mention some projects I've been on where I've just been like oh god no, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that it just I, I, just I, I mean because uh, well uh, yeah no I, it, I
1: I think it's important that we have those uh, in our in our, our personal histories because. For a start, you you can learn from those, right? You, yeah, I mean, you probably all think of, but uh, negative experiences. But but even so, you can always learn from things. I mean, I I am not going to name many names, but I do remember one experience, uh, which was while I was doing a training excavation as an undergraduate, which was so utterly miserable at so many levels that I just swore that I would never do that to anyone else, and. While I can't claim that I've necessarily always lived up to that hope, there have been multiple occasions when it has informed the way I've thought about how we try and get the balance between task needs, team needs and individual needs right in a project. And there you know, so so even if even if some it's it's a even if it's a relatively horrible experience, there are still things you can learn from it.
0: Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. Actually, somebody said that to me before. They were like, "If everything went right, you'd never learn anything from it." So this it, it, <laughs> is it, it, true. It's true. You learn. You learn through so it's being on excavations where things go wrong, and obviously, unfortunately, sometimes when you do things wrong yourself, but yeah, you wouldn't learn and improve if you didn't go through those. Uh, and, and it's true, actually, I have, I actually, I actually, I, I think there is definitely a lot of truth to that. I think there are things in my mind that have become instilled in my mind, particularly when it comes to things like excavation, that I know I need to do, or things that I think about doing, because I've been on digs where it's not happened. And I've seen what's happened when it's not happened. And it, you you know what the results are of how it can go badly if certain things aren't done. So you make sure you get those things done to make sure those bad things don't happen. But as you say, Absolutely. you'd never you'd never know that if you didn't go through that.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I think, I think one of my concerns, and it is something I'm sort of trying to do things with, is that necessarily when we're introducing people to the subject, uh, we tend to uh, teach from the point of view of uh, ideal models in which the resources are no question, Case studies always somehow triumphantly achieve their goals within the framework that's set, within the time given. And that's not really the experience most of us have with many of the projects we are working on. And I think that it's really quite important that we, not just as individuals, but as a community, keep learning uh, from the things that go wrong. And that's why, in a way i would i would like to see a cultural current within archaeology in which we can more openly speak of our mistakes and and i think that 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 actually allows others to learn from them as well and crucially also means that when things have, have gone wrong they're openly admitted to because we are in essence a community of trust as archaeologists so many times when we write a work of synthesis we are are depending on the work of a colleague or a group of colleagues, who, given the nature of archaeology, have at their disposal a way of sort of hiding away mistakes, over-excavated or unexcavated features, vital data that was misplaced, um, and we depend very much on one another to, to, to tell the truth as we build up our bigger pictures of big questions. If you scrape the surface on many an excavation, of course, uh, you'll find that things aren't quite as they're necessarily presented in the traditional format of outputs.
0: It's It's interesting as well. One of my colleagues was saying before that one of the first things he does... I think with a new class or so when they're talking about things like uh, coursework, he has a, uh, you were talking about this earlier, actually, the uh, similar thing in Newcastle where he basically just writes on a board like his most embarrassing moment in academia or like the worst comments he's got back from a reviewer as well just to demonstrate to undergraduate students that it's like it doesn't matter how far along you get on the career ladder, things still go wrong for you. Thing, you get things wrong. Get Getting things wrong, it's not the worst thing in the world and you're going to learn from it as well it's it's kind of partly about learning how to cope with that and getting something positive out of the experience as well
1: yeah and i really admire that approach i mean i i do think it's good that it's it's manifesting itself more and more in a whole range of different ways uh, i think it's in, i think it's incredibly important i think it also needs to go alongside another approach and we still have this tremendous tendency in archaeology to describe site such and such which was excavated by person x and the the truth is that the vast majority of our field work is done as teams mm. so that's another side to it you know i so I think it's important to individually uh, acknowledge where we've messed up and i've got a, got a long list of things um but I also think it's 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 important to recognize that when we achieve things, pretty well always the achievements are of a great many different people that we may if we we're a project director be be you know fortunate enough to to facilitate and work with um so that's that's another side of it too but but i i totally agree and i think this issue of being open about our failures hopefully facilitates to greater confidence in that particular example in, in classroom exchanges you know in let Exchanges because that's another battle that we've got now. I find working with our, you know, our wonderful current undergraduates is there's possibly more anxiety, more reticence, and I'm talking generally about the undergraduate cohorts than we were used to maybe 10, 20 years ago. And these these things, an- anxiety on the campus, part of broader cultural trends, um, greater awareness of some of these trends can, in part, be uh, tackled I think by those of us who appear to be in very secure and solid positions of authority actually emphasizing our own fallibility and humanity.
0: Yeah absolutely no. I couldn't agree more actually I think he is I think Well, I was saying before we started as well that he one of the reasons I started up doing this podcast is to hopefully demonstrate to to undergraduates and well even people even younger at school or you know people that are kind of up and coming that these lecturers, the or archaeologists or whatever, they that everybody's human and everybody's had their setbacks. And as I say, like we're not up on a pedestal somewhere. That there's no reason that many of them can't aspire and eventually achieve to to reach that that level as well of having an article published or a book published or running an excavation or whatever. It's it's it, it, it's in their reach to do. Yeah,
1: absolutely right. Mm. Absolutely right. I think one of the marvelous things about our subject. Is that everyone potentially has something to contribute to it because everyone on the planet is really engaged in the business of archaeology. Hmm. We're all archaeologists, we're all experts in material culture, just some of us make a living out of it and some of us don't.
0: (laughs) That's a good way of putting it, actually. (laughs) I mean, talking about undergraduates then, I mean, going back even before undergraduates, so as, as I always ask people, so what was it for you that initially inspired an interest in? archaeology and specifically led you down the path of, of roman archaeology
1: it was a picture that i saw when i was 10 years old oh wow but
0: that's that's very that's very on romans. point wow
1: <laughs> strangely I can, strangely enough i can I, and unusually because my memory is very poor and i think it's quite hard to put things down to a single moment but i think in this case i i, I can um, it was a picture of some romans And I was just fascinated. It was a pen and ink drawing. And I was just fascinated. I was fascinated by the way they were dressed and what they were doing. And it happened at a time when the school was doing Romans. And so I just did every exercise I could that related to Romans. And I did extra worksheets on Romans. And uh, I became fascinated by the Romans. Now, I never made a mistake. And this is something I sometimes really regret when I hear people say it. I never said I liked the Romans. After all, the Romans were a whole range of very different people and aspects of Roman culture were, to my mind, absolutely abhorrent. But I found them fascinating. I found them fascinating. I found them that mixture of something that we felt we could connect with and something that was distinctly different. And so things then built up over the years and... uh, Really, when I subsequently was advised that I should think about applying to university because I wasn't at all sure that was a good idea. I wasn't at all sure uh, that, that I wanted to go to university at all. Uh, the only thing that I could really <laughs> think of that I could connect with was the, the Roman archaeology. And I had become, very interesting through, through that early encounter, I mean, I must have been an appalling, appalling person, but I was fascinated by just going to museums and copying down inscriptions. And that was what I did. I say appalling person because when other better adjusted children were having birthday parties and doing things like that, I would ask if I could be taken to a museum and left with a pen and pencil on my own,
0: copying down inscriptions. Was that when you were copying down the inscriptions? Did you actually have any idea what they said at the time then, or did you? Ju- was it just for the sake of? Yeah, same thing?
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I was, and I was starting to build indices of various, various terms, okay, and so forth. But what then happened was when it came, when it came time to, to be, you know, decide. Yes, okay, I'll go to university then. I the the, the university I had connected with. All that time ago was Newcastle because it had been the museum on the purse that had this stuff, so that seemed to me a very natural place to go. And obviously, since that, I've been in many different universities, um, but that that was what what led me to apply to to Newcastle. Very quickly, I, I am glad to say, uh, as soon as I, I encountered the the enormity of archaeology and anthropology, because I did a. Subsidied Anthropology, I just found the whole the whole thing fascinating. And so although I have a long history of engagement with, with Roman studies, one of the things that I enjoy about archaeology in general is it doesn't really say, I'm just doing this. Uh, so the Lateran Project is a very obvious example of that. Not only am I working on sites that start much earlier, than those that I had studied before, um, but I am every bit as fascinated uh, in the story of that that part of Rome and Rome right the way through to to the uh, to the 21st century. And when I've been working in commercial archaeology, the the privilege of working on uh, say a Neolithic mortuary enclosure has been every as real to me as working on a uh, Anglian hall. So I I, I find people archaeology is fascinating and as a member of a team which has got loads of great people in loads of different uh, subjects subject here at Newcastle it's to me very easy to understand why they're all equally passionate about their different areas they may not have their expertise in those but I, I think I get it and therefore can hopefully be a, a, appropriately supportively uh, collegial and in engaged in what they're doing and maybe even some interesting observations because I find it all amazing. But the start was a picture uh, seen at age 10 uh, during a very wet playtime at school when we weren't allowed outside. And uh, so they gave us some old comics to look at. And that was what was the trigger. And though I've taken very many different thoughts and very different career paths and done a number of other jobs outside of academia, Ultimately, I, th- I think, in many ways, that moment was, was pivotal to, to the, the larger scheme of where I ended up at the moment.
0: Yeah, because you're one of those people that, as you were saying, you've, you've moved between the worlds of academia and, and commercial archaeology. And I know you worked for Museum of London for a while as well, because in that as well you worked across the, yeah. the medieval department and the post-medieval department as well. But I mean, it's very interesting. I did not Yeah. Yes. Yes, yeah. yes.
1: I was probably I was probably the most hapless ever employee, but they <laughs> were really they were really great to me. I I actually was a volunteer with the medieval department, and I worked with. The post medieval as was then and that, that was amazing because of course now we're much more engaged in what's often called historical archaeology i i was able to with a lot of lot of material which um, of course we encounter often in fragmentary form across multiple excavations in, in britain but which speak to a, a whole range of fascinating experiences and areas is where there's really exciting uh, new scholarship coming through. But I loved the time I spent as a volunteer on, in medieval. Um, that was great. And, and I enjoyed my time yes, working with commercial units. as uh, we, I was very well treated by my friends at Oxford Archaeology. I learned a huge amount from them and worked on some marvellous projects under a, a very inspirational site director, actually, um, Jill Hay. So a so, uh, huge, huge debt to all of them.
0: Yeah, no, I do. I mean, it's interesting just on, on two points because of what you're saying about engaging with colleagues in, in other fields of archaeology and the experience of working with medievalists and post-medievalists and I've been talking to people like previously on the podcast, people like Andy Gardner and Greg Wolfe, and they were real big proponents of the idea of you know interdisciplinary discussion and engagement. The fact that Perhaps, in the past, the you know, Roman archaeology or like most other fields i suppose has has to some degree limited itself by being a bit too inward looking and yeah. in more recent times that's that's changed now, and now we are engaging a lot more with as you say uh, people doing anthropology, people doing prehistoric archaeology as well, and understanding that there's a lot to be gained from what's I going on in other fields,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I I'd agree with them both at uh, um, definitely one level. In fact, I think one of the most powerful insights that anyone ever offered me was something that Greg said to me many years ago when I asked how he defined himself. And this is going back many years and, and uh, in, in scholarly terms. And he, he said, well, the issue is more about what question am I pursuing and what do I need to pursue the answers you know, to, to that question? And I thought that was an incredibly healthy response because it, it straight away takes you out side of a particular series of of packages and labels. So I I, I have a lot I have a lot of time for that. Uh, I think where I would sometimes qualify this is that while I think that things are so richly interconnected, you do need to be very careful to keep thinking out of the box. There are areas where the truth the matter is, you need a staggeringly high level of technical expertise to to even get off the starting blocks, and that does create a level of specialization. So I used to be much less appreciative of the spectacular levels of knowledge of colleagues, say, uh, doing uh, standing building archaeology, or uh, analysis of what, what sometimes one might consider almost the fine art end of the archaeological spectrum. Um I have come to realize uh, that these areas are, and I just offer two examples there, um, but even within the narrow field of, of Roman studies, they are just so enormous that it's not difficult to see why what can look quite narrow to an outsider is in fact uh, an exercise that takes many lifetimes to, to acquire the essential norm. To
0: move the subject forward yeah, I mean I guess that ties back to what you were saying earlier though about the fact that we we work as part of a team that yeah. you don't you can't really succeed. I mean I would say in archaeology I think it's I think it's impossible to succeed it on your own essentially. I think you need to be communicating well with other people as you say you've got to recognize there you can't because you can't learn everything it's impossible. Um, you, you have to rely on the expertise of others that have acquired it over a long period of time and i mean as, as i found in archaeology the great thing usually is that most people are more than happy to to share their expertise because i guess the reason we do a lot of this stuff is because well, as we've been saying is the fact that we really enjoy it i think that's the primary motivation uh for many people in the field so if somebody it's like for example if somebody wants to come and talk to me now about mithras I'll, I'll, <laughs> they can't shut me up shut me up after a while but it, it's one of those things that everyone. <laughs> Yeah, everybody everybody's got their uh, yeah. contribution as you were saying and that every contribution is important.
1: I do agree with that very much David. I think this issue of enjoyment, I think the generosity of colleagues, I think the 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 team nature, I think everything you say is bang on. I think one of the things that would would strike me particularly is in terms of advancing something as a team in order to maximize the way in which the team works forward together, you you end up needing to obviously be a very capable generalist, but I think you also need to look at where your own areas of special specialization lie as, as well and how to sharpen them as much as possible because, you know, one can have a situation where one says, well, you know, this team has got this specialist, this specialist, this specialist, and this specialist, but of course... To get the most out of an archaeological exchange, an investigative exchange, you need to ensure that the kind of levels of knowledge and expertise that are being leveraged are exercised as fully as possible by, dem- by demanding and challenging and appropriate questions. And I think, I think that's one of the things. So I'm delighted to be in a job that just proves to me the level of my ignorance every day. Hmm you know, unfortunately, going back to that point about generosity in teams, I'm delighted that, you know, the colleagues that I work with are so good at forgiving me that ignorance and helping me to learn to uh, move beyond it. But it, it is really great, actually, to be humbled by the sheer amount there is not only to know, but to to ask the sheer number of ways of, of learning um, and, of course, to, to, to recognize the sheer number of things that are, going to remain elusive
0: i think it really is a case of the old adage of the more you learn the more you realize you don't know something yeah. like that. i can't remember the exact that's, wording uh, of it but I, that, that I think,
1: I think that's right i think that is right i think that is right yeah. and it's it, you know it, it's it is it's sometimes quite breathtaking but but how much nicer how much more wonderful how much more life enhancing it is to be in that environment than one where you really feel you've got it all sorted
0: Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I'd rather keep learning. And that's the good thing. I mean, it, sometimes when people talk about things like retirement, I, mean, I don't know. And I think it's a broad thing across archaeology. I've said to people, like, I don't ever see myself retiring as such. I mean, obviously there's a common point where I don't maybe work at university or for a commercial unit or something anymore. But I don't see myself ever stopping wanting to, to research stuff, to read stuff, to keep expanding that knowledge and hopefully contributing to it. That's something I hope to be keep doing like until... Basically, I can't do it anymore, really. But, yeah, it's one of those things that the engagement never stops because you realise there's always another question to keep asking.
1: Yeah, and it's a a wonderful thing.
0: One of the things I actually wanted to touch upon was the fact that I noted the fact that you've actually done quite a bit of travelling over the years. You apparently once nearly got lost in Amazonia.
1: Well, yes. I mean, I think uh, that was uh, a very interesting journey Uh, that that's going back quite a few years that's before i did my my doctorate and i was working at the museum of london and they kindly allowed me time between contracts to head out to amazon really uh the deforestation at first hand and i ended up meeting a couple of people out in brazil i wanted to go out really into the heart of amazonia so set off for Manaus. And um, got there, chartered a boat, chartered a crew, um, a guide, a guide with a reputation for being able to travel through Virgin Jungle and bring the teams back out again, and set off, really. I mean, it was an interesting experience, and the, the, what, what struck me was that Many of our crew were somewhat sceptical about this endeavour. Uh, <laughs> I learned later on that the captain refused to allow his his son to 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 his son his adult son to to join us on the trip because he didn't think we were ever going to come out again. <laughs> wow! <geez. laughs> um, but having, having been having been dropped
0: off at an, an agreed landing
1: point, we we headed inland, and at one stage basically the um, it, it, you, you, you realize how good or otherwise your, your your sense of your sense of space geography is and of course I had no real experience of forests at that time and I remember you know trying to trace members of the group for only a relatively short distance and was completely completely unable to see where they were to follow them Fortunately, it was not, uh, how can I put it, A um, it did not become a life-threatening situation, but it was a chastening
0: one. Yeah. It,
1: uh, it was a very interesting exercise in thinking about navigation and in, in also admiring the skills of our, our guide. Um, very interesting indeed um, but Amazonia was an extraordinary experience I, I did come back with uh, malaria from it um, oh, wow. <laughs> plasmodium vivax could have been worse it was it was a very interesting experience I think one of the things that struck me about it was that you felt the rhythms of the day in an incredibly intense way uh, from the sounds of the insects the movement of the light much more acutely connected, I think, to, to the world around you than I'd often felt as a sort of creature of suburban London. Uh, and so that was something of an education, I must say. And I've always felt, actually, more generally, that we as archaeologists need to be really sensitive to to the issue of of, of time in the short term, temporality, uh, seasonal cycles, all of these, these different things that, that the people we're studying would often have had a vastly more... Nuance sensitivity to than we the we tend to have.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more on that. Because you've also been you, and you also spent some time on the Silk Road as well, correct?
1: I did indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was um, I was I was fortunate to do that. I I've been lucky enough to in various different capacities uh, spend time in um, in Pakistan and on this particular occasion I travelled up through Pakistan up into China and then across China and. Uh, that was an amazing experience, a really remarkable experience, from dropping down onto the Tibetan Plateau, going up onto the borders of, of Inner Mongolia. But but I, I think probably one of the areas that I at the time found most especially fascinating was uh, uh, traveling through Xinjiang province and uh, seeing the desert cities there, looking at the way that the Chinese colleagues were were wrestling with that extraordinary heritage, and i I think of course one of the things that one always needs to be very mindful of is 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 the notion of the Silk Road uh which we tend to talk about is is misleading there were multiple multiple roads, multiple points of connection between east and west, and I think that that issue of the connectivity of the west um uh, which we see now of course. Uh, revisited in other ways, uh, including the Chinese government's own new programs of mass uh, infrastructure for for transportation across uh, Central Asia, transport and communication across Central Asia. I think that theme of linking East and West is incredibly fascinating. And I think that some of the themes that we as researchers could benefit and will always be able to benefit from if we explore further and reflect more deeply upon is the fact that some of our subject areas, some of our disciplinary areas, tend to be unnaturally bounded and, yes, fairly Eurocentric. Now, that may seem rather a strange thing for uh, someone who is um, a card-carrying roman archaeologist to say but i'm an archaeologist first and i'm conscious of the fact that the the romans certainly had an empire but they were engaged in multiple ways of course uh, with people's uh, way beyond the limits the territorial limits of that empire as well
0: Hmm, yeah i guess it comes back to again like what we were saying earlier about you know interdisciplinary approaches and having discussion with colleagues that as you say, going beyond, we talked earlier, I suppose, about periods in, in that regard, but also, and I suppose kind of research focus, but also, you're saying like geographically as well, looking beyond, as you say, the, the study of the Roman world is very Eurocentric, and going beyond that and looking at the connectivity that that had with other areas of the world, because obviously there's a massive knock-on effect when you have something like the Roman Empire and how it relates to the rest of the world both past and present yeah, it's, it's something to really yeah I mean, take on board
1: yeah totally i mean i i i think um there is there is a there's a lot of very very good very important work going on of course on uh relations in in the near east and sometimes i'm, I'm struck by the fact that people are often, Unaware of just how far those those reached, and the different forms of permeability and cultural exchange in the in those zones and connectivity, in which Rome is a player in a much larger and often much longer established, of course, network of communication. Um, I also find that that broader, if you like, Greek uh, tradition and its geographical reach is is intensely powerful. Um, I've been enjoying enormously and benefiting from the opportunity to work with colleagues. Uh, in in recent years is is a, in a long held interest I've had in in Gandhara civilization and this extraordinary world uh, which uh, really reached its height in Pakistan Afghanistan north northwest um, India where you see a bringing together of what one might think of as the classical aesthetic with early uh, experiments in figural art in in Buddhist Practice—it's absolutely fascinating, and uh, that's something I'm very, very excited about, uh, and always have been. I've always found it an incredibly rich world and era of study, which, which I feel we've got some very, very fine uh, leaders in in classical archaeology in Britain. I think particularly Peter Stewart at Oxford, uh, who who are at home in the study of if you like, that, that more uh, Mediterranean based art and culture of the Roman world, but who are also very much at home in the, in the study of Gandhara civilization. But often there isn't as much uh, exchange between those different fields as, as there could be. And I, and I think uh, the more there is, the, the better it'll be. And it reminds us just of the extent of communication, exchange and influence. And I think it surprises many people when they think of these Buddhist monasteries in what is now Afghanistan or northwest frontier province of, of Pakistan that operate in such an utterly fascinating
0: way. Well, it's, it's really interesting stuff. I suppose also as well, sometimes it's probably just quite nice to be looking at, I mean, we talk about you know, the importance of interdisciplinary approaches, but also sometimes it's just nice to take a breather and look at something that's quite also quite different in, in many respects to what you're focused on more on day-to-day research as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think it is. I think it is important. I think it gives different perspective. I, I hope it, it it stops becoming too stale. I think again, it's often an exercise in mapping one's limitations, and you know, it's it's, it's just great stuff too. At the end of the day, I just find it absolutely fascinating. Um, so yeah, absolutely, yeah, and and I think we're really fortunate with this uh, in that. While all sorts of factors come together in university life to uh, encourage and reward a great specialization and while uh, there are obviously needs to make sure that we stay on top of the topics we're fortunate to be uh, teaching or making sure that our ref outputs and our research outputs are you know as, as, as high quality as they can be there remains that scope i think within academic life at the moment for us to actually to spend some time exploring things that are different particularly within archaeology our, our remit covers so many different things and i and i think that's necessary it's necessary for us it's necessary for the health of the field and it's just you know it's in, in, an incredible privilege again i keep using that word but i think it's the right word to use of, of
0: being in in the position that i'm fortunate to occupy archaeology it's the, it's the gift that keeps on giving just, just uh so just moving towards uh, wrapping up. then i mean is there anything at the moment that you have particularly that you'd like to promote at all uh we mentioned earlier about some of these publications coming up but is there anything going on at the moment that you'd like to to give a mention to
1: yeah i mean i, I think my um oh you know so many so many super colleagues really excited now to be bringing the lateran Volume to a close with, with, with BSR. I think it's an amazing place. I think everyone should know more about the, the Lateran Cathedral. Really exciting, too, to be able to explore the broader themes of the transformation of Rome in the southeast corner. And I hope people will, will stay tuned there. Enormous privilege to continue work on Hadrian's Wall at a number of different uh, locations, both using well using a range of, uh, of different methods of investigation. Uh, we'll be bringing our Maryport project publication very soon, and I hope people will will spare some time to look that over because we have there very interesting evidence for artists on Rome's northwest frontier. And we were talking at the beginning about uh, expanded interiors. Uh, the work of uh, Catherine Huber there, for those who haven't seen it, really um, some remarkable installation work there uh, showing how uh, fine art and the study of Roman art can, can, can work together in a, in, a, in a very, to me, harmonious, innovative and attractive way. Um, and I, I think, you know, when it comes to works out in, in Romania, Had so many great colleagues there. I'm really looking forward to seeing uh, the results of our our shared labors actually coming out to a wider audience very soon. So uh, I'd ask people to look out for that as well. Um, Yeah, those would be some thoughts for the moment.
0: Brilliant. Right. Well, thanks very much. And I guess if if anybody wants to contact you about anything at all, they can just, well, they can easily find you via Google, can't they? They know where to find me. Yeah, yeah. Cool, brilliant. And thank
1: you very much for the opportunity to talk, David. It's always a pleasure. And uh, it occurs to me that as ever, when I'm answering questions, I come across as very dull and dry. But <laughs> sure. If there are points that people would like to, to to sort of explore, I promise to be a bit more lively. And um, and the, more, more to the point, you know, I like you were saying about Mithras, you know, there are certain topics that once we're started on, uh, we'll be very happy to, to give people probably even more than they want on the topic. So, mm-hmm. so if anyone does want to get in touch and chat, I'd be delighted to hear from them.
0: Brilliant. Thanks a lot.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh, or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses@gmail.com. at gmail.com. That's with full and don't forget you can subscribe rate and review the show on itunes and spotify big thank you to the institute of classical studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants the theme tune is la Cahora by royal music available for download at freemusicarchive.org and in the background right now you can hear an 8-bit version of the indiana jones theme by miles metal originally by john williams but you all know that which is available on youtube Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a diocletian.